guess we'll go ahead and get started. My name is Leslie McCarty. I'm the manager of the Kentucky Room. So glad you all are here. Uh, I just told Mr. Pritchard that I was going to wing his introduction because I tried to Google him and I couldn't find him. So uh, <laughs> it probably is. You need to cause some more trouble, I do suppose. Uh, Mr. Pritchard is with the Filson Society. Uh, what do you do there? Okay, so that's what he does. And um, about 10 years ago, uh, he did my very first program, which was about Jesse James. So um, I hope that didn't make you feel old. So please welcome Mr. James Pritchard. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, uh, I started working at the State Archives in Frankfurt back in the 80s. And then after I retired, I uh, got a part-time job at the Filson in uh, uh, Louisville. But uh, I've always been interested in Kentucky history and particularly, you know, like uh, when it gets into the sex and violence aspect of what goes on in the glorious old Commonwealth. But in this particular instance, this is uh, a tale that's probably very appropriate for this time of year, you know, sort of like the Halloween uh, era or season, I should say. And the Hart brothers have been largely forgotten uh, by generations of Kentuckians. Uh, since they met their deaths in the uh, early 19th century. But they've had a little bit of a resurrection recently uh, among those that are uh, doing research or true crime authors that are writing about, you know, the serial killer phenomenon. But uh, technically speaking, I, I kind of think of them more as spree killers and even more to take it out of the uh, true crime context and put it more in a historical context, I, I sort of think of them as the bastard, you know, children of the American Revolution. Uh, Kentucky Frontier was a very violent place. Uh, the South was and has been a violent region for quite some time. And before the Revolution, there were organized bands of, of horse thieves that roamed in the uh, Virginia and Carolina back countries. And when the Revolution broke out in 1775, and Americans took sides. Well, what you basically had in the South was a civil war. Uh, the South was very strong for the king. And in colonies like South Carolina and North Carolina, where the Harps allegedly grew up during the conflict, you know, about half of the residents in those colonies were, were loyalists. And the warfare between Whigs or Patriots and loyalists was extremely brutal. Uh, homes were burned. Uh, people were dragged from their homes and murdered uh, in some of the clashes uh, no quarter was given in other words neither side gave uh, you know took prisoners uh, it's really like the nightmare side of the revolution that doesn't really get a lot of play by historians just to give you one example uh, Colonel Cleveland one of the heroes of Kings Mountain a patriot leader uh, was also notorious for his way of dealing with Tories in Western North Carolina uh, he would usually hang them as soon as he caught them. And on one occasion, he caught two Tory horse thieves, and he promptly hanged one. And then he looked at the other and handed him a large knife, and he said, I'll make a deal with you. And, I'm, of course, I'm paraphrasing. He says, if you cut off your own ears with this knife and leave the country, I'll spare your life. If you don't, I'll hang you with your comrade there. And so the fellow took the knife and cut off his own ears and lived, hopefully, to tell a tale, you know, tell that tale to his grandchildren. But that was just like one incident 
you know, again, of many brutal, bloody deeds on the southern colony, particularly in the border between, you know, the edge of the settlements and the Indian Territory. And the strongest allies for the, uh, for the crown in many ways were the Cherokees. You know, they felt that the crown would uh, shield them against the constant influx of settlers into northern Georgia, western North Carolina, and east Tennessee. And so they raised their hatchet for the king. Well, when peace was made after Yorktown and the treaty was finally signed in 1783, well, many of the Cherokee tribes were still on the warpath with the new independent United States government and continued to wage war. Um, they were constantly raiding into the Carolinas for horse and hare were their two main items. And a lot of Tory exiles took refuge with them. And of course, if many of you have seen uh, the Western saga, Lonesome Dove, and uh, there's a scene involving some uh, Native American and white outlaws in the Indian Territory banding together to pillage and rape, plunder and murder, why you had a similar scenario in the, in the Appalachians uh, during this particular time in the 1780s, 1790s. And so it's believed that the two Hart brothers were loyalists, or the children really of loyalists, they might have been too young to fight in the revolution, but they were among the many loyalists who were driven into the back country and evidently sought refuge with the Cherokees, particularly the, the most warlike uh, group of that tribe near present-day Chattanooga, the so-called uh, Chickamauga settlements. And of course, the notorious Chief Doublehead was uh, a major war leader of that particular uh, set of towns in the Cherokee orbit. Uh, one of my favorite stories about him was that in one of his forays into the Barrens of Kentucky, uh, he and his war party encountered a party of settlers, or I should say hunters, and uh, there was a tough fight. Uh, Doublehead and his band finally prevailed. Uh, Doublehead himself killed the bravest of the white hunters. And as was custom in some cases, you know, if you killed a brave man, how could you absorb, you know, the strength or the bravery of your foe? Well, you might eat his heart or you might eat a portion of his remains. And so Doublehead had a portion of this man's thigh cut out and he broiled it and he ate it. And according to the old story, he said that he would never eat uh, white people again because they were too salty. But essentially, this gives you a glimpse of, you know, the type of conditions that were uh, very real on the southern frontier. And this included Kentucky in some ways in the 1780s and the 1790s. The Harps supposedly took part in 1794 in a Cherokee attack on settlers near Nashville. Uh, they also took part in what was known as the Minister's Defeat. A party of Methodist ministers from Virginia were making their way through, along the Wilderness Trail and were attacked and virtually wiped out, and the Harps supposedly were with the Cherokees that perpetrated this uh, particular attack. The Nickajack town, the headquarters of Doublehead, was finally destroyed by Tennessee and Kentucky militia in 1794. And some of the accounts of that attack, you know, would be uh, very similar to what we would hear or see repeated uh, across the western frontier into the far west. Uh, many women and children were killed. The 
dwellings were burned, the crops were burned. Uh, I remember reading one account in which uh, uh, a militiaman was guarding some young prisoners, children, and another militiaman walked up, presented his rifle, and killed a little boy that was about 11 years old. And when his comrade asked him why he did that, he said, well, nits make lice. So again, brutality on both sides, uh, across racial lines and across old political lines were very much the norm. The Hart brothers first appeared in the area of Knoxville, Tennessee in 1797. At that time, Knoxville was the capital of Tennessee. Um, they bought a tract of land. You can actually locate the deed in uh, Knoxville records. And they married and settled down. Uh, Wiley, or Willie Harp, known as Little Harp, married Sarah Rice on June 1st, 1797. She was a Methodist minister's daughter. Big Harp had a dilemma. His real name was Makaja. He married Susanna Roberts, but Susanna's sister, Betsy, was also in love with Big Harp. And this shows, I think, a gentle side to their nature. Uh, here he had two sisters. Both were in love with him. He married one. The other was heartbroken. So he took both sisters in uh, to his bed. And so, in effect, he had two wives uh, that he, he lived with and would later, of course, go on uh, this crime spree, this legendary crime spree. According to some accounts in Tennessee lore, the Harps were, like a lot of frontiersmen in those days, very much addicted to hard drinking, gambling, horse racing, and they began to lose heavily. And people in the region also began to lose heavily, uh, mainly in their horse stock. And pretty soon it was suspected that the Hart brothers were serious horse thieves and criminals. And on one occasion after uh, several horses were stolen near Knoxville in 1798, a posse followed the trail of the perpetrators directly to the Harp cabin. They uh, set out in pursuit. The Harps had taken a drove, this drove of horses. They were en route to southeastern Kentucky. They were overtaken, arrested, and were going to be taken back to Knoxville for trial and more, more than likely hanging. But they escaped. And according to what we found out about later about their, their crimes and their career, uh, their wives said that this was the final break for them. They had tried to, in their eyes, you know, make their ways into civilization, into society, ended up being hunted men and outlaws again. And so the wives, soon to be widows, would say that they decided to declare war, in their words, against all mankind. And so they left the East Tennessee region in late 1798, the two harps and their three women, and they set out on the wilderness trail bound for Kentucky. On the way, according to one account, or during this particular era, they uh, ran into a Methodist circuit rider by the name of William Lambeth. Lambeth was traveling alone in the region between Nashville and Knoxville. And it was late at night, pitch black. He was seated by his campfire, when all of a sudden a very tall, ominous figure stepped out of the darkness. You know, he'd actually been able to stealthily creep up on his camp and announce that, you know, he was about to, to rob the good reverend, take his goods and all he had. And as he's going through the reverend's saddlebags and so forth, he finds a Bible. And apparently 
this was Big Harp. Apparently, at least he was literate. And he looked through the Bible, and he saw that there was a reference, some references to notes that Lameth had made about George Washington. And he read him. He said, George Washington, he said, you know, he was a, a great man, but a mighty rebel against the king. And so he handed Lambeth back his Bible, took what money he had, and took his horse, but he spared his life. And this made Lambeth a very rare individual in terms of those who encountered the hearts because they believed very seriously in that old maxim, dead men tell no tales. So he lived to tell about his encounter. As the uh, party traveled on the Wilderness Trail a bit further, they murdered a peddler near Cumberland Ford. They ran across two travelers from Maryland and, of course, introduced themselves as weary pilgrims with these poor women folk. Uh, these roads are dangerous. We should band together for protection. And so the Marylanders agreed to join their party. They proceeded some distance through the wilderness on the old wilderness trace. The Hart brothers, from riding beside them, gradually fell behind them and shot them both in the back robbed them, stripped them, took their horses and goods, and went on their way. Soon they encountered another young man named Thomas Langford from Mecklen County, uh, Mecklenburg County, Virginia, and struck up another agreement to travel together. They reached a, a tavern in Rockcastle County, Virginia, and spent the night. This was on or about December 11, 1798. The next morning, they got up to continue their journey, and the Harps, Langford came downstairs and found the Harps wrangling with the good lady of the house over the price of their breakfast. They felt that it was too high. And Langford made a fatal mistake. He went up to the lady of the house and apologized for their behavior. He said that uh, he would take care of the son, that he had over 500 pounds in his saddlebags, and he would you know, not let this lady go without proper payment. Well, he just announced to the two murderous thieves how much money he had on his party. They proceeded on their way, and a few days later, some cattle drovers traveling on the Wilderness Trace back toward the cavern uh, ran across his body. They noticed buzzards circling over a patch of woodland, and they found him stripped and tomahawked to death and his body thrown behind a log. I should add that this usually wasn't their, uh, their MO, and there are probably a lot of other bodies out there that were never found, because their favorite method of disposing of a corpse was to disembowel the corpse, you know, scoop out all the intestines, and then load the stomach cavity up with rocks, and then sink them into a deep river. But in this case, evidently, it was cold, they were in a hurry, and so a couple of tomahawk blows to the back of the head finished poor Langford. A party set out in pursuit led by uh, a then well-known frontiersman with the lovable name of Devil Joe Ballinger. And they set out in pursuit and captured the harps near present-day Houstonville in Lincoln County on December 25th. They gave their names as Roberts. They were brought back to the... Uh, Danville Jail to await trial by the circuit court where they were indicted for the murder of Langford. And during the winter, all three Harp women uh, came with child. And so they were all pregnant, awaiting for their, their husband's trial in the spring. But, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, 
look at your priorities. And the Harps felt that, you know, it was probably best that they escaped and surely their women folk would find out some way of, you know, taking care of themselves. And who knows, I'm sure there was some type of premeditated plan and, and uh, correspondence between them or communication, I should say, or that they were in jail. So on March 16th, the Harps found some loose logs in the side of this old jail, shoved them out, jumped into the streets of Danville, stole a horse, stole two horses, I should say, and made their escape. The women folk were left behind. Uh, the townspeople of Danville took pity on them, gave them food, clothing, and of course, by this time, they had given birth to their, their children. And they swore that they were through with their men. They were going back to their families in East Tennessee and if they, the good people of Danville would just give them, you know, the money and wherewithal, they would be on their way. And so soon they were riding southward out of town, while a posse, once again led by Devil Joe Ballinger, led the pursuit. They overtook them near the headwaters of the Rolling Fork in Marion County. And at this point, the posse outnumbered the Harps, outgunned the Harps, and they came upon each other, and the Harps stood and just glared at their pursuers and dared them, you know, come and take us. And according to legend, the Harps were such ferocious looking characters that the men actually froze in fear. And you have to understand that these were men who had lived on the frontier, endured hardships, maybe participated in the Indian Wars, no doubt fought in the revolution. Again, Devil Joe Ballinger didn't get his name by being uh, you know, a good psalm singer in that regard. But they froze in fear. And so the harps disappeared into the brush. The, the posse went and got uh, Henry Skaggs, another old Kentucky long hunter, got his fierce hunting dog, set out in pursuit again, overtook the harps in a dense cane thicket. And the dogs and the men refused to go into the thicket after the harps. And so the harps were able to make their getaway and this would cost the life of several people as they made their way to Western Kentucky through this region of the state where they are now. As they were near Columbia, they ran across a 12-year-old boy named Johnny Tribue. He was on the way to the mill for his father. And they murdered him and dismembered him for a sack of flour and threw his remains in a sinkhole. Uh, his father knew something was wrong when, after the boy was late coming back from the mill, while the little boy's dog came limping up to the house, all bloody and wounded, where the harps had evidently tried to kill the dog as well, but it escaped. They uh, went on to the head of the Little Barren River, killed another citizen named Dooley near Edmonton. When they reached Bowling Green, they ran across Frederick Stump Jr., who was the son of a prominent Nashville pioneer who had taken up homesteading in the Green River country, found him out hunting, uh, camped with him, uh, got the drop on him, murdered him, and disemboweled him and sunk him in the nearby river. This is interesting, though. Evidently, they didn't do a good job, and maybe from the gases of decomposition, why the body rose to the surface. And I actually found his coroner's report. This was kind of cool, some of the things you would never expect to find in the Warren County records, which uh, described the nature of his fatal wounds. And it was just exactly the way tradition was, was that he was you know, stabbed to death and then slashed open. So there you have three additional victims, you know, murdered en route. Again, Stump murdered for his uh, hunting rifle. By this time, Governor James Garrett of Kentucky offered a reward for both men. On April 22nd, 
but they disappeared into the Green River country. Now at this time, the three harp women, as they made their way back toward Tennessee, slowly changed direction and made their way through the same area of Kentucky, through the Barrens, through the Green River country, and set up a homestead in Henderson County, Kentucky at this time. Now the actual whereabouts of the harps during this period these next few weeks are unknown, but there's some wonderful old local traditions that they crossed the Ohio River and joined up with the river pirates at Caven Rock. Of course, you still have a state park in Illinois to this day. And from this cave, river pirates, of course, would prey on the flatboats going from uh, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Louisville, on down to New Orleans at this particular time, rob and murder passengers, settlers, or uh, again, men taking stores down the river. Now, according to this tradition, the Harps participated in the capture of a, of a flatboat. Uh, they were celebrating their uh, prize with the, the pirates. And at one point, the Harps thought it would be a good joke to take one of the captives and tie him to a horse. And so they led him to the top of a cliff that kind of overlooked the base of the cave where the campfire, the pirates' campfire was and they drove the horse off the cliff so that it crashed down below and killed both the uh, horse and rider. And this, to the harps, was just, you know, having a good time. But the pirates didn't, according to tradition, didn't quite see it that way. Uh, they were so disgusted by the harp savagery that they drove them from their mitts. And so they were driven out of uh, that particular area, although they were also tied with three additional killings on the Illinois side of the river during this period. Took, play, took refuge in Old Hopkins County at this time before they made their way into the Chickasaw country. Again, this is the spring and early summer of uh, 1799. Swung back to the east and showed up in the Knoxville area in mid-July. The people in that vicinity knew the Harps had returned when the corpse of a settler named Hardin was found sunk in the Holston River, gutted and his cavity uh, filled with rocks. Shortly afterwards, a settler named Bradbury was found murdered near Kingston, Tennessee. On July 25th, two more bodies were found near Knoxville. Isaac Coffey, a 15-year-old boy, was murdered on Beaver Creek. According to tradition, they murdered him for his fiddle and took him and bashed his brains out against a tree trunk along the side of the road. William Ballard was afterwards found gutted and sunk in the Holston. People of Knoxville went into a panic. They offered a reward for the capture. Posse set out in pursuit of the two killers, but they, by this time they were on the road back to Kentucky. On July 29th, two South Carolinians, brothers, James and Robert Brazell, were en route to Kentucky when they were overtaken in present-day Morgan County, Tennessee. What's the news? The two riders said as they rode up, a common courtesy in those days. And the Brazell brothers said, oh, you know, been terrible killings and murders around Knoxville. You know, the Hart brothers are back in the region. And these two strangers said, well, we are part of a posse. In advance of a posse, we're hunting these brothers. We want you to come with us. If you help us catch them, you know, we'll split the reward. And so they rode along together. The two strangers kind of gradually fell back and then pounced on the two brothers. One was able to make his getaway on foot, 
but the other was captured. The brother who escaped fled back down the road, ran into a party of more settlers coming along the road, told them what had happened, that the terrible harps had uh, captured his brother, and they rode off in pursuit, where they soon found his, uh, Robert's brother James' body, brutally beaten and stabbed to death, lying in the middle of the road. Well, somehow, someway, as they continued their pursuit, they got ahead of the harps, and they stopped in the middle of the road to plan, you know, which direction they would go in next, when all of a sudden the harps and their three women came riding along and rode right past them, standing in the road, and once again fixed what was usually described at that time as their demonic glare on these men. And once again, they froze in fear and just let them ride on by. The Harps continued into Kentucky. They murdered John Tully on July 31st, just a couple of days later in Clinton County. The news of their return to Kentucky once again spread terror through the state. Uh, Colonel Daniel Tribue of Adair County, whose son, as I mentioned earlier, had been butchered that spring, wrote the governor, published, who published a description of the outlaws and had them posted in Kentucky newspapers. They also sent a courier to General Sam Hopkins in Henderson County, feeling that the Harps would once again return to their Henderson County uh, haunts. On August 2nd, the Harps were sighted on Marrowbone Creek in Cumberland County, and shortly after, the bodies of John Graves and his son were found butchered in their cabin. Once again, vultures circling over the cabin uh, tipped off people of the neighborhood that something was not quite right. The Harps stopped to spend the night, and they waited, and when Graves and his son fell asleep, they uh, killed them with axes and then threw their, their bodies like dogs into a brush pile outside the cabin door. The Harps and their women returned to Henderson County, virtually undetected. Accounts vary, but at one point during their flight westward, Big Harp was so concerned that they were going to be caught and was so disturbed by the constant crying of his infant son that he snatched the child by the heels from the mother and dashed it to death against the side of a tree. Again, that's the type of individuals that we're dealing with here. The child wouldn't stop crying. He was afraid it would give their secret campsite away, and so he did away with his own child. After they got into Henderson County, they began to haunt the well-traveled trails to the Salt Licks in present-day Webster County. One Trowbridge rode to Robertson Lick and never returned. His body was found weeks later. On the night of August 20th, the Harps, who posed as Methodist circuit riders, hauled at the Moses Stegall cabin. And again, what's fascinating about these men, as brutal and murderous as they were, they were also dangerously cunning. And so they were weary pilgrims when you met them. They were kind of what we would call today shapeshifters, but not in the supernatural sense. Or they would be pious men of the cloth, and they would convince you of that. Or again, as we saw with the Brazeltons, uh, they were part of a posse pursuing themselves. Well, they were pious Methodist circuit riders who stopped at the Stegall cabin. Uh, Big Harp supposedly read from the Bible uh, quite a bit and uh, you know, said grace at the table. Uh, Mr. Stegall was away. It was a lady of the house and a baby in a uh, cradle. 
and they asked to stay the night. She granted. That was a common custom on the frontier in those days. A little bit later, uh, Colonel Love, Major William Love, I should say, a surveyor stopped by and asked to spend the night. And no one will ever really know what happened on this particular night in western Kentucky in August of 1799. But you know how it is. The traditions that followed eventually supplanted or uh, obscured many of the facts. But according to one story, uh, Major Love snored. He snored loudly. He snored all night. Uh, Big Harp's nerves were already frayed. And so in disgust, he got up and took up tomahawk and killed Love in his sleep and then went back, back to sleep himself. They got up the next morning and ordered breakfast. And good Mrs. Steagle was making them breakfast. And they said that the harps were rocking the infant's cradle. And she said, finally, you know, the baby had been fussing a little bit. And finally, she said, you men must be awfully good with kids because that child hasn't made a peep for some time. And then according to tradition, when she went over looking at the cradle, why the child's throat had been cut. So then they murdered her, robbed the house, and set fire to it and burned the house down to, to shield the corpses and the crime. They, according to one account I found in the Draper collection of uh, Frontier uh, lore, they actually threw Stiegel's dogs into the cabin and burned the dogs up with uh, the rest of the people inside. And when the dogs began to, to yelp in pain, one of the harpists probably said, laughed and said, oh, they smell hell, don't they? And so they rode on. Well, Stiegel returned and immediately uh, got a posse together of some very tough frontiersmen at that time. Some of these men had fought at uh, King's Mountain, including Squire Silas McBee. So McBee and five other frontiersmen and Stiegel set out in pursuit. They overtook the Harps the next day as they were moving southward into present-day Muhlenberg County and caught them as they were attempting to murder another traveler by the name of Smith on the trail. And, of course, Smith was fortunate. He was released under the clutches in time. And the Harps took off uh, fast in flight on their horses. But their women were slowing them down. And so they dumped their women and continued to flee on horseback. Finally, Little Harp jumped off his horse and took into the brush. Big Harp stayed on his mount. And a frontiersman by the name of John Leeper set out in pursuit. And finally, it was just Big Harp and Leeper in this particular death ride. Leeper was a dead shot. He finally got a clear shot at Harp, shot him through the back and broke it. But Harp didn't topple from the horse, and he still continued to shout insults uh, at uh, Leeper until finally he tumbled out of the saddle and fell on the ground. He was still alive when the rest of the posse came up. And accordingly, he took time to confess all of his sins. He said of all the people that he had killed, he said the only one that he regretted was his own infant son just a, you know, a few days before. And then again, we get into the realm of legend. According at this point, Stiegel stepped up with a rifle and told him to prepare to die and shot him in the head. Another version it was is that Stiegel stepped up with a Bowie, what would later be called a Bowie knife or a large hunting knife and told him it was time to die and began to cut off Harp's head while he was still alive. And supposedly Harp said, cut, cut, damn you. You're a damn rough butcher, but cut. Well, you know, 
who knows? But at any rate, the head was severed from the corpse. Uh, the men made their way back to uh, present-day Webster County. At one point, they, they camped on the trail. Um, Harp's head was placed in a leather pouch that also had corn in it, you know, that they were using to feed their horses and themselves. And uh, one of the party wouldn't eat any of the corn out of the, the uh, carrier because, you know, the head was in there and you know, all this sort of thing. But the other men, you know, they were hungry, tired, and, you know, supposedly went ahead and had their evening meal anyway. The closer they got, this is August, they were going to take the head back to Henderson. But the closer they got to Henderson, the head was in such a condition that, you know, they really couldn't keep traveling together. So, again, following an old custom, they got to a fork in the road north of present-day Seabury, found a tree, fork tree, took the head and placed it in the tree and put a sign, more or less, like, you know, this is a warning to all, you know, thieves and rogues and murderers, horse thieves, something to that effect, and went on about their way. And that head soon became a grinning skull, and that skull remained in that tree for quite a number of years. Uh, according to local tradition, a uh, woman, a local woman who was something of a conjurer, finally took the skull down and pounded it into powder and made some type of concoction out of it. What for? Who knows? But the old tree still stood there until it was struck by lightning in the 1870s and partially burned. The, the old charred, uh, gnarled stump was there for some time after that, but of course, it's long since vanished. Little Harp made his way into the Natchez Trace country, and he joined the land pirates that uh, preyed on travelers in the Natchez Trace, and also uh, the river pirates on the Mississippi River. Uh, he double-crossed uh, his partner in crime at that time, who had a, a pretty good reward for him in uh, Natchez, uh, he cut off his head, uh, wrapped it in clay, took it into Natchez for the reward, and was recognized as Harp. And so he died on the gallows around 1803 or 1804. The Harp women were taken to Henderson. Uh, there were threats against their life. There was threat talk of lynching them. So they were taken to Russellville and Logan County for their safety for trial, change of venue, and they were acquitted. Uh, the Roberts sisters, Betsy and Susanna, settled in Logan County for some time. Uh, Betsy lived out her years there. Uh, Susanna married and settled in Hardin County, Illinois, which right in the Cave and Rock country some years later. Uh, young Miss Rice, the wife of Little Harp, or the widow of Little Harp, I should say now, was sent home to her father, her uh, uh, minister father in East Tennessee. And later she married uh, and lived a respectable life. Uh, she also, I think, ended up settling in the uh, Illinois country. So this was two men who, two brothers allegedly, who inaugurated a reign of terror that literally terrorized the people of two states for several months in 1799 and met violent, bloody ends, and would become, for a generation or so afterwards, you know, the stuff of plays, uh, the true crime novel, or you might say of the 1820s or the 1830s, 
uh, of that nature, and of course were written about in newspaper accounts, lurid crime accounts for generations later, but have been largely forgotten until now. And in many ways, I think some of the modern day serial killers and criminals could probably, would probably take a back seat in terms of uh, just sheer savagery and brutality and ruthlessness from the harps. But it could also be argued that they were the product of their times. And the frontier would, did and would continue to breed, you know, very ruthless individuals like this all the way until the, the American frontier would close in the late 19th century. So that's my sermon for tonight. And if anybody has uh, any questions at this point, I want to step over and uh, recharge my batteries. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Yeah, accessories. Although this is what's interesting to me, uh, the, I've seen original accounts of the remains recovered from the burned Steagall cabin and uh, from the old court records. And what I thought was interesting was is that her charred remains had three knives embedded in her body. And of course, you've got three women. And I never could find any account of the remains of the infant. So, you know, if, if the story about the infant having his throat cut in his cradle was just something that grandma and grandpa would use to, you know, frighten children with when they misbehaved years later, you know, it, it makes you wonder whether the three women murdered the lady of the house and then took the baby, you know, since the one mother had lost her child. And so that's always been, it's one of these types of things I'm sure we all do. If you run across a crime like this and, uh, you know, you sort out all the pieces of the puzzle, well, I just thought it was interesting that there were three knives in, in the body, whereas the harps, you know, generally would just, you know, brain you with an axe or a tomahawk or shoot you, something like that. But it almost makes you think that the three women sort of um, banded together to do this together and murder the lady of the house. But yeah, they were regarded as accessories to the fact. And yes, sir. Um, uh, speak, speaking on that, you said that all three of them were uh, with child at one point. One of the kids were killed. Did the other ones uh, survive? Yeah, uh, the, a son, the, a son, um, Betsy's son lived and um, ended up joining the United States Army uh, in the early years of the 19th century, but I've, I've never been able to find you know, his military record, but that's the tradition. And then Miss Rice's child uh, was raised by the other Harp sister, and she, they both lived together until they died of natural causes in Logan County. But yeah, the children lived out their lives, and I'm not aware of any um, mistreatment on their part. Uh, one thing that might need to be taken into consideration here that I didn't really mention is that uh, the Harps may have been part of a ring of former Tory outlaws. And, you know, a lot of people haven't been taught this, but, you know, when people in the Carolinas and Western Virginia were driven from their homes for being Tories, well, you know, the wealthy went to Canada or they went to Nova Scotia or the super rich went back to England. But what about the poor man? Where's he going to go? Well, he's going to go to the frontier. 
And so a lot of Tories settled in East Tennessee and in Kentucky. And they, the Harps actually named a confederate of theirs that uh, lived, I think, in Livingston County, whose name escapes me at the moment, but they claimed that he was just as bad and evil a man as they were. And evidently what they would do was steal horses and other goods and then deliver them uh, to uh, what would today we would call a fence. And that person would sell these goods and then split the money with the harps. So again, there may have been a network. I mean, you see the same thing, you know, uh, Leslie mentioned my Jesse James talk. You see the same thing after the Civil War where the James Younger gang go on a, a crime career of 19 years, largely because their family members and ex-Confederates uh, shielded them and fed them and hid them. And so I wouldn't be a bit surprised if there was a similar scenario on the, the southern frontier after the revolution. Yes? I think they were just, they went to the, at, when they came into uh, the Green River country, the far reaches of Kentucky at that time, that was the far-flung frontier, right before you got into the Chickasaw country. And so that was as far west as they could go without going to Natchez and then maybe getting into, you know, Spanish territories in Texas, uh, that sort of thing, and uh, Louisiana. But that was the extreme frontier. And so, you know, you see this in countless, in some cases, sometimes really bad Western movies where, you know, you go into the frontier, you know, you clear the land, you fight off the Indians, and then you make it decent for law-abiding folks by running out all the outlaws. Well, that, there's an element of truth to that. You know, uh, you know, the lawless element would go to the extreme reaches of the frontier, uh, you know, to, uh, hide from the law and uh, practice their, their trade a little bit more easily. Any other questions? Yes. Um, you mentioned a couple of times um, uh, the, I guess that's a nickname, the, the Kentucky Barons. And I wasn't sure if that's a topographical term or a geographical term. Um, what would you mean by that? It's a, if you take sort of present day Barron County as the, the heart of that region, that was an area uh, in that region of Kentucky that was often referred to by the early settlers. My, I've run across two accounts. One was that it was a region kind of where water was hard to find at times, and others that it wasn't quite as uh, thick with uh, forestry, you know, forests and that sort of thing. But to be honest, I, I would really have to do some serious digging into that. But that one region of the state was referred to as the Barrens. That makes sense. Yeah, that, I've heard that water shortages were part of the reasons why you know, that was referred to as the Barrens at that time. Very romantic, terrible sound to me, so I was like, Any other questions? Yeah. You know, when you get right down to it, I mean, when you think about it, you know, like, you know, in Louisville, every August they have the zombie walk, and so everybody covers themselves with blood, and they stagger down the streets, and all. But you know, zombies, vampires, werewolves, you know, the most frightening monsters you'll ever run into in, in your real life are other people. <laughs> you know, and these guys were cunning murderers, and it's like, oh, who was the famous 
was it Ted Bundy, the famous serial killer from many years ago? He was considered, he was able to, to lure so many victims, apparently because he was a nice, good-looking, charming young man. And then he, he was a, he was a cold-blooded murderer. So yeah, the real monsters in this world are, you know, the real scary stuff in this world is all related to uh, all of us, you know, human beings. That's when you get into the real monsters, you know. That's a good question. There, there are de physical descriptions of them uh, in the governor's papers in Frankfurt. The reward that uh, Governor Garrett put out actually has their height and you know physical descriptions. I don't remember uh, reading anything about facial hair, but you know you would think that if you were in the brush on the trail for a long time, I mean, especially if you're on the run, sometimes they probably. Uh, did have some pretty hefty beards, but uh, uh, Big Harp's hair was very coarse, and some would describe it as almost woolly. And uh, of course, uh, there was uh, some traditions that he had had African American blood, but I think a lot of people would lean toward that because, after all, uh, you know, white people wouldn't act like savages like these men. So they have to be part Indian or you know, part African-American. So I, I've always discounted that, that part of their background, although, I mean, that, that could be true. But uh, at any rate, uh, they were, you know, very, the type of person that if you walked into a, you know, like a biker bar <laughs> and, you know, uh, and somebody gave you the wrong look, why well, you'd probably want to leave, you know, pretty quickly, so. Any other questions, Sergio? Yeah, yeah, big burly, and uh, both of them though were uh, were very uh, rough and tumble individuals, and uh, of course you know I mean that was the way you had to be on the frontier in those days. In those days, uh, uh, men didn't fight duels on the frontier like their their betters did back east. They would. Uh, engage in the rough and tumble, and that usually meant that you would try to gouge your opponent's eyes out or bite his nose off or pull his ear off or sometimes remove uh, part of his most cherished, uh, you know, uh, uh, ornaments and that sort of thing. So that's the way people fought on the frontier, and uh, so it was, it was pretty, pretty rough, brutal existence. Yes? <laughs> yeah, it, uh, like I said, um, and these were just two uh, individuals. I mean, some of you have probably heard about uh, the uh, land pirates at Ford's Ferry, which is pretty close to this area. And uh, there are all kinds of tales in a lot of southern uh, states. I've run across some in eastern Kentucky where my, my parents came from, uh, where you, know, you would stop at an inn, and of course, it would be like an inn like out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, you would go to sleep, and then of course the people that ran the inn would murder you, and rob you, and then hide. And that's exactly what the innkeeper did at Ford's Ferry, you know. And that's an established historical fact. People going from Kentucky to Illinois 
Well, he, if they were really, you know, had a lot of valuable money on them or valuable goods, he would murder them and then stay, steal their items and throw their bodies in the river. So, you know, again, these were just two criminals in a crime-infested frontier. But like I said, the, the way that they went about their crimes even shocked people of those times. So they kind of were head and shoulders above the rest. Any other questions? You know, there's been um, a novel, I think a historical novel, called The Wilderness of Tigers. Um, it may be in the library here. I forgot to check before I came down. But uh, no one, to my knowledge, other than some, a few things that are online, uh, has actually done a, a full-length book study a, of the Harps. older book from, I want to say, maybe the 30s or 40s. Yeah. I, I forget. It's about, I mean, it's very sensational. It's sort of an Asperian style, so it's probably... I, Was, was it Rothert's, uh, I think it's like the, the Pirates of Cave-In Rock? No, it's, but it's, it's in that same era, era, and it might be the same yeah. author, because he wrote a bunch of these like true crimes in the 19th century thing. I, I, I want to say it's called like the Outlaw Trail. Or oh, yeah, Coates. Coates, yes, Robert yeah, Coates. Yeah, Coates. yeah, yeah. Um, he wrote, uh, he devoted some attention to them. Uh, Otto Rothert, of course, used to work at the Filson Historical Society back in the 20s. My grandfather was in Okay, and I, I think he was a native of Muhlenberg County. He wrote the county history. Yeah, that's where from. And of course, that's, uh, he, he became interested in the Harps. And uh, when he did his, uh, I, I think it's the Pirates of Cave and Rock, why well, he devoted quite a bit of attention to the Harps. He was supposed to be a very eccentric gentleman. He never learned how to drive. And so when he'd go on his research expeditions back home, he would hire a driver that would take him you know, to all the landmarks and courthouses and stuff. Any other questions? Well, it's been a real pleasure visiting with you tonight. And again, uh, check with Leslie. If anybody has any questions after I get back to the Filson, just email me. I could be glad to help you with anything uh, related to this or any local history topics we might have some sources on. Thanks very much. Thanks.